Welcome to the House of Lords podcast. In this episode, we speak to Martha Lane Fox, Baroness Lane Fox of Soho, about what brought her into the House of Lords and the work of the COVID-19 committee, which she chairs. And we also discuss changes in the Lords and the upcoming state opening of Parliament. and welcome to the May episode. Uh, since the last episode, the House has elected a new Lord Speaker and Parliament prorogues ahead of the state opening on the 11th of May. We'll talk more about prorogation in a second, but first, Amy, can you remind us about the Lord Speaker election? Yeah, so Lord McFall of Alcowith was elected uh, the fourth Lord Speaker. Uh, he took up the post on the 1st of May, and previously he held the position of the Senior Deputy Speaker, um, and he also served um, as an MP before he joined the Lords. We'll be hearing more from him in a future episode. Before Lord Macfall gets to sit on the Woolsack as Lord Speaker, he first has to attend the state opening of Parliament. So Parliament was prorogued on the 29th of April, which signals the formal end of one parliamentary session before you move on to the next one. That word prorogued, prorogation, that's not something we tend to sort of use in our everyday lives, um, probably quite alien to a lot of people. Up until 2019, actually, when it got a lot of media attention, where does that word actually come from? Well, I mean, the, the word itself, I think, comes from Norman French. Um, it's way beyond my uh, uh, abilities to understand exactly where it comes from. But it's certainly been in general usage in parliamentary terms for about 600 years or so. I mean, obviously, famously, Charles I uh, prorogued Parliament and uh, set an awful lot of stuff off by doing so. Um, so it does have quite a lot of history. And as you say, in recent times, it's uh, been con quite a controversial term as well. So prorogation, as we said, is the end to a parliamentary session and the state opening is the start of the next one. But why do we actually have state opening? How far does that sort of ceremony date back, do you know? As you say, I mean, state opening is required to um, start the parliamentary year again. So as you say, prorogation is... Uh, is the term we use, which means the uh, parliamentary session has ended. So in order for the government to legislate and do stuff and for Parliament itself, you know, the Commons and the Lords to be sitting, Parliament needs to re be reopened and that's uh, performed by the monarch. The ceremony itself probably goes back over 500 years. The modern ceremony itself started in 1852. So that's the sort of ceremony we know it now the route that the monarch takes from Buckingham Palace, all the horses and the coaches and the royal procession, and obviously a full chamber full of parliamentarians and diplomats and, and guests. The, the, the state opening itself is, is, I guess, sort of symbolic of the evolution of power from, you know, um, being run by the monarch of the of the time. State opening sort of retained, even though the power has moved away from the monarch, to obviously the parliament we have today with elected MPs and peers in the Lords. So this year will obviously be uh, be quite different, but in normal times, normal circumstances, what actually happens on the day itself? Okay, so I mean, if anyone, anyone who's ever watched the uh, ceremony on the telly will ex expect to see sort of lots of people on the street watching this ceremony take place. Typically, the Queen would travel to Parliament in a state coach, escorted by the Household Cavalry. The Queen then, on arrival, goes to Sovereign's entrance, goes up the steps to the robing room where she would dress in the robe of state and the imperial crown. And then, again, if you if you watched it before, but you you can imagine the Queen going along with the royal procession 
through the Royal Gallery into the Chamber of the House. Members of the Commons are then summoned to the Chamber, and that's the famous Black Rod having the door slammed uh, in her face. And then the uh, MPs come and hear the Queen read out what is, in effect, the government's legislative programme for the forthcoming session. And of course, let's not forget that members of the House of Lords wear ceremonial robes, you know, um, ermine and the uh, red robes. And that's the only time, apart from their introduction to the House itself, you'll see up here wearing robes in Parliament. And as you said before, the ceremony as we know it now, we think dates back to around 1852. Has it changed much at all in that time or has it remained the same? I think the fundamentals of it have remained the same. I wouldn't... Uh... I wouldn't be able to say for sure exactly what the differences are over the years, but these things do evolve. I mean, obviously, one thing to point out, 1959-1963, the Queen herself wasn't there to deliver the speech. And obviously, we've had years where there hasn't been a Queen's speech at all between 2010 and uh, today, 2011, 2018, 2020. None of those years saw a Queen's speech. But on recent years, we have also seen examples of the Queen's speech, the state opening of Parliament taking place with reduced ceremonial. So these things are subject to change, I guess, depending on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So this year will be a bit different for obvious reasons. Do we know exactly what will be happening this year? And, and has there been sort of similar changes to that previously? Well, due to the COVID pandemic, there will be fewer people attending this state opening. So there's going to be a reduced procession. Uh, when the cameras are on the chamber, you won't see a full chamber. There's going to be a limit on the number of people that are attending there. Uh, and no non-parliamentary guests. Usually there's diplomats um, sat in attendance, a full range of judges sat in the very front. But um, it's going to be minimum numbers this year, which makes it very different. Also as well, the Queen will likely arrive by car, which is not actually unprecedented. The last two Queen speeches, 2019, uh, 2017, the Queen attended by car in certainly very different circumstances. On both those occasions, state opening was organised with perhaps a little less time than usual because of general elections. Um, so again, the ceremonial aspect of it was adapted, I guess. I suppose what makes this year a bit different is that there was the opportunity to have the full ceremonial. But obviously, pandemic rules means that you can't have the number of people there. So as I say, when you tune in, expect to see a lot less people, which would make it pretty unprecedented. So you mentioned just there quite a sort of well-known part of state opening where Black Rod will go to the House of Commons and have the door slammed in her face. What's going on there? What, what's that all about? Yeah, it's uh, quite an interesting thing to watch, isn't it? I mean, international viewers must be baffled by that. <laughs> it does seem quite rude, doesn't it? <laughs> I, think every, I think it's something everyone seems to enjoy. Black Rod has the door slammed in her face, as you say. And that's to symbolise, in effect, the power and supremacy of the, uh, the House of Commons relative to the monarch. It's basically a monarch commanding they come to the House of Lords to hear the speech. And it's just a symbolic act to show that uh, the House of Commons isn't being told what to do. The Commons is coming by its own free will. Uh, and as I say, it's, it's an ancient thing, really. It's been, it's been going on for centuries. And again, it's a long-standing sort of ritual of the defiance of the House of Commons. Before prorogation, the COVID-19 committee released its first full report titled Beyond Digital, Planning for a Hybrid World. Uh, we spoke to Martha Lane Fox, the chair of the committee, about what they found. Uh, here's what she had to say. <laughs> I'm Martha Lane Fox. I'm the chair of the House of Lords COVID-19 Select Committee. I also have worked for a long time in the technology sector 
and thought about some of the long-term implications of the issues that we're thinking about in the committee. Martha, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, as you mentioned, you chair the Lords COVID-19 committee. What's the focus of the committee been so far? Well, we were established, it's hard to believe, but not even quite a year ago. And we were asked to look at the long-term implications of COVID on the economic and social well-being of the UK. Now, obviously, that was quite hard back in July, June, whenever it was we started our first meetings, because people were still so much in the middle of the pandemic. It was clear whether or not we would be looking at freedom and different kind of life again by Christmas or whether it was going to be longer. And obviously, we're still kind of arguably in the middle of it and that's a year later nearly a year later so we decided to do an exercise asking people out in the country what they thought the long-term implications would be and we got thousands of submissions of evidence people sent us poems they sent us drawings they sent us thoughts about what they believed were going to be the changes that we'd see and perhaps they weren't you know incredible <laughs> new ideas because Perhaps this time has not really been much um, that people have thought will change things dramatically, but we were very pleased and excited to hear from people from such a wide range of different communities in such a profound way. And although we didn't come up with any particular surprises in the conclusions, I think um, it was really valuable to have opened up Parliament to that kind of process. And surprise, surprise, the things that people were worried about were the rampant inequalities that they'd seen through the pandemic and were going to continue. They were worried about care. They were worried about um, you know, looking after children and older people. They were worried about what technology was doing to us and all of the um, new relationship we had with the online world. They were worried about the environment, green spaces and some other things as well. But we chose to start on the first um, inquiry after that by looking at this relationship with the online world. And um, that's what we did from kind of September to what we published a couple of weeks ago. It was a detailed inquiry because we looked at all of the aspects of well-being as they are generally laid out by experts in the sector, and that's physical health, mental health, it's the uh, impact of the quality of your work, it's your social interactions, and it's um, your uh, income and how you how much money you have and how you generate money through work so we, we kind of broke down our inquiry into those different areas and the committee's just finished looking into the impact of um as you say a much faster shift to digital in our lives and um, you touched on some of them there but what are the real implications that you can see of that rapid change well as i say i have worked kind of in the technology industry sort of on the edges of it or using what i learned from it in other areas my whole entire working life and I have been amazed at the rapid process of acceleration through some of the trends of the last year. If you told me that the House of Lords would be voting on their smartphones in the January 2020, I'd have thought you were smoking crack. But actually, guess what? Within about a year, a month, the House was up and running and we were doing those incredibly um, effective different processes. So I think what we saw in the pandemic was a whole bunch of different things, but fundamentally the trends that were sort of happening anyway were just sped up. And crucially, some of the inertia that you'd seen in certain areas or partly personal motivation, sometimes organisational motivation, had to be broken through because people had no choice but now to try and use the online world. So that was one huge trend. But 
you know, in tandem with that, which is really the focus of the most bulk of the report, was the enormous inequalities that were also exposed through this um, acceleration. Partly, clearly, people who had no access to technology didn't know how to use it, but also people who had a very poor experience of services that were being offered. So is digital inclusion one of the um, bigger challenges that we face post-pandemic? And, and what else do you think the government should be doing? I think that digital inclusion is a kind of catch-all phrase that will be used in the reports um, and others use it as well, but it's it needs to be broken down. So digital inclusion can be looked at from many different angles. Firstly, you've got people who've never used the internet, never had access to it, can't afford it, who are completely outside of um, you know the world that we're communicating in now and how most of us, I think, generally have now become to operate. And to address those people's needs will be a very specific set of things that might be needed, you know, access to infrastructure at a good cost. We talk in the report about anybody who's on any kind of income-related benefits being able to get access to cheap and uh, affordable internet as well. So that's one aspect of it. But then also there's the skills and the um, understanding and the actual ability to use it. And that's required different things around training and helping people with the provision of uh, those kinds of services. So that's a, another bunch of recommendations that we make. But then there's also um, digital inclusion that you could sort of look at from a slightly broader perspective. So rather than just the very vulnerable communities that have never used the internet, there are then a huge tranche of people who have an internet connection but don't have a good fast one or who have one smartphone that the families are sharing for all the children to do their schoolwork. And we had so many examples of very, very difficult situations for children to be learning in when they were forced online at the beginning of the first lockdown. Families sharing one smartphone between multiple children. I mean, I, I just can't imagine how stressful that must have been for people. And we know it was. So there's a whole bunch of issues around that sort of people who do have some kind of access, but it's just not good enough and not uh, able to deal with what they're being asked to deal with in, in, in this, this last year. And then there's a kind of slightly more nuanced layer on top of that, which is there's a digital skills and understanding of the people that are providing the services that we're all enjoying. So just as much as you have a really patchy level of understanding sometimes amongst members of the public among citizens so too do you in schools in hospitals some gp surgeries provided fantastic ability to do appointments online and everybody felt very um, up to speed with how to use these systems some schools had an amazing transition onto um, providing home schooling others did not and partly that's you know, sometimes bad organizations but some more often in my opinion and that's what the committee it was to do with a lack of good quality infrastructure in schools or a lack of training for the teachers who have been asked to do things in a dramatically different way. So that is also another form of digital inclusion. And as well as those um, sort of negative impacts, are there many benefits actually to the shift to digital that we could be taking advantage of more? I mean, for instance, I'm thinking, you know, could this be quite a a positive thing for climate change and for the environment, for example? Absolutely right. And that was something that we were really keen to see some of the positives in our work you know of course we mustn't ever uh, underestimate the profoundly stressful time that this has been for many many millions of people added to by often very complicated relationship with technology or no technology at all and that really was front and center of everything we were seeing but you're absolutely right to, to say that it's, it's not all negative arguably the shift to digital has allowed 
much more flexibility in how people work, people to move location, maybe people before had thought that they'd have to be in a city, have to live in a certain environment, but now given more freedom and choice about where they can live and how they work. And that's entirely enabled by technology. Similarly, actually, you could see that, well, some groups and communities really needed the face-to-face -face connections and um, were desperate without them. Other communities had benefits from being able to gather together online. We spoke to some disabled community groups and uh, other had pieces of evidence from other witnesses who said that actually they found that they were able to take part in whatever they were taking part in in a slightly more equitable way than in the real built environment because the technology was a kind of leveler. So we can bring the best of those things in how we design for the future and something that came out very strongly from so many different people that we talked to and experts that we talked to is how important it is to involve users in the design of services, particularly anything where government has a role, because it will be, um, you know, voices of disabled people or people with special needs of any kind that will help us to work out what the best services is in this new blended hybrid world. And one of the things the uh, report highlights is a shift to a hybrid on an offline life. What do you think a good hybrid on an offline life might look like? We were really keen to get away from this notion of kind of digital and that this is a report about digital because that kind of clearly sounds very much as though we're talking about another a time quite a long time ago and you could sort of think about the digital world in this little box it's here it's not optional we are in the world we're living in which is sometimes offline sometimes online you know i've got children of four years old and they won't see a difference between going online and living their, their life you know it's already increasingly mixed and blurred so we were just really keen to encourage the government to think about the world not as a um series of uh, binary choices about digital technologies but actually in how you use them effectively together and how you decide what's most effective face-to-face -face, a combination of face-to-face -face and digital or pure digital and to tr really try and work along that spectrum not just assume that everything should be face-to-face -face and not just assume that everything should be purely um, delivered online there is going to be a spectrum of, of different ways of working across different services so I think, you know, a, a good hybrid life is is a complex question to answer because it will be different for different communities of people. You know, for me, with all the privileges that I have, I love having the flexibility of being able to work from home a bit more, being able to not have to do so much business travel, being able to um, have that kind of remote working embedded more deeply in my life, just as I'm very happy to see doctors online as I have to far too often, unfortunately, or, you know, use services get shopping and so so on for other people that won't be the case you know they, they don't have that luxury of having space to work at home they don't have that luxury of clement employer that isn't demanding back-to-back -back zoom calls and giving them no breaks you know there's a lot of issues here that we need to unpick to help people have the most successful time in this new blended world and we talk quite a lot in the report about the kinds of rights that we think people should have whether it's rights in your employment setting or rights in relation to government services or rights in relation to access to the technology itself so i think you know the fundamental thing here is that we believe the government needs to rethink how it thinks about its digital and technology strategy because that already feels defunct People need to be put at the heart of the strategy who are the most vulnerable and for whom some of this is, is extremely stressful and complicated. And we need to really rethink the, the way that we're structuring our society 
at a much more um, profound level than we believe the government is doing at the minute. Martha, on the podcast, we like to ask our guests about their experiences as members of the House. And I know that so far the committee has had to meet uh, entirely virtually. How has that been as an experience for you chairing the committee? Well, careful what you wish for. eh? I've spent so long in my life encouraging organisations to transform digitally and to think about the internet. And I've kind of, for nearly what feels like practically 30, not quite 30 years, 25 years, been trying to champion what this brave new world looks like. Um, And so in some ways, it's thrilling to be able to do these things and to be able to talk to such a vast array of different people. One of the things we did early on in our in our work not not in this inquiry and the one before is we had loads and loads of drop-in sessions where we encouraged groups of um, citizens to come and talk to us in a way that I don't think they would have come into parliament it was very informal we had people from lots of different types of groups we had you know people from the Roma community we had very heavily disabled people come to talk to us we had you know single parents who would have never had the capacity to come into parliament and that was really fantastic because I definitely had my eyes opened and had um, that access to people in a way that would have been much harder previously so some enormous benefits but having said that you know in the end a committee is a collaborative project and it's been hard to not have ever met my colleagues who've all worked so hard on these difficult issues and also if these are complex subjects right we've got very very inspiring people on our committee all of whom have strong views all of whom have very strong ideas about what the long-term implications of COVID-19 are and I wish we could have had a few more face-to-face robust debates because you lose you do lose something in that kind of just riffing about what you think the issues are uh, only online and I really look forward to the day when we can all meet together because it's a funny thing to get to know people just through the screen and I didn't know very many of them well before. And could you tell us what's next for the committee? Absolutely we're currently um, looking at the question of families and parents and how that's been affected by the pandemic and the the long-term impact on parents and families. We're doing a kind of shorter inquiry and going to be finishing that in a a couple of weeks. This is such an important topic and it came up again and again in our first work looking at people's views from from wider in the country. We've heard so many stories of families where they've just had so little contact with the outside world that children have really struggled. We've heard families where babies have been born who literally have only had one person cuddle them in that period of time. What might the long-term implications be on that? And then you have, you know, other end of the spectrum of, you know, the complex um, situations if parents don't can't get work or one parent has to work one can't work all those situations so that's what we're currently looking at and then we're going to be moving on to doing an inquiry about the future of towns and cities so you know one of the challenges of our committee is that you know you've got so many different directions that we could go and there are so many aspects of the world that are going to have been affected about this last year 18 months and you know i'm picking the ones that we can add something to which isn't replicative of other committees has, has been one of the things we've been really careful to try and do can i uh, return us to uh, your own experiences again here yes um, you know, you're well known for being a leader in digital policy and practice. I think earlier you mentioned being in or on the edges of uh, that sector your entire working life. Um, but also as well, you're a campaigner on um, the environment and inequality. So can you tell us how that fits in? How does a member being, how does a member of the Lords fit in with all of that? <laughs> well, I, 
I, my life has ended up in a very, very strange place, considering if I, you'd asked me, even when I um, was leaving my business, I set up lastminute.com, I don't think I'd have written ever on a piece of paper that this might be where I'd end up, but life takes funny twists and turns. So I started my career building an internet business, lastminute.com, that was really one of the first companies to show that the internet wasn't going to blow up and to encourage people to use their credit cards on the internet. It really was an incredible experience. And age 25, kind of had the experience in eight, nine years that you might have over the whole career. But it was also a bit like being in a very famous pop band that had one hit because um, you then get sort of tagged with that one hit and you actually don't know anything because you've had this one very strange experience. So um, it, it was a strange kind of setup for the rest of my life. And I um, then had a very, very serious car accident. Uh, members might have seen me walking around with my two sticks in the house. And I had to spend two years in hospital and completely rebuild my life. And because of that, I had to rethink my working life because um, certain things were not going to be um, able to be part of my life anymore and a certain way of working was going to have to change. So that's why I sort of ended up in a slightly portfolio lifestyle as a 75-year-old when I was only 35. But actually, it was phenomenal. And one of the most amazing opportunities I was given was by Gordon Brown when he asked me to be digital champion for the UK, looking at exactly these issues around um, digital inequalities and how to help more people use the, use the internet. And then I was lucky enough to be kept on by um, David Cameron and did a lot of work on digital government and helped create Government Digital Service and Gov.uk, the website that now we use as the front end to government. And all of that was such an amazing experience. It really shifted me from the um, commercial digital world to the kind of institutional public service digital world, which is the one I very much enjoy being in. And I wanted to think, how can I contribute to that more? And that was what led me to applying to the House of Lords, because as you know, some crossbenchers apply to be there. So I filled in an application form thinking there's no chance, you know, I'm 38, they're going to say, go away, come back again when you've actually learned something. But actually, I had a very tough interview and then got in. So I was um, delighted and wanted to try and use some of my experiences of the technology world to bring to, to the legislative process. Uh, you joined the House as a crossbencher, so independent of a political party in 2013. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier your sort of surprise if someone had told you in early 2020 that the House would be um, voting remotely. But when you joined in 2013, did anything surprise you when you first became a member of the House? <laughs> oh, no, nothing at all. <laughs> yes, quite a lot of things surprised me. I mean, I think I was surprised that my um, everything from some of the, the fashion choices that I was making, which uh, at that time I was entirely dressed head to toe in Marks and Spencer because I was on the board of Marks and Spencer and I felt very loyal to the brand. But apparently that was a bit too racy for some of my colleagues. That was quite surprising. Through to um, uh, quite a lot of people when they heard that I was, was going to be uh, a member started asking me if I knew how the Wi-Fi system worked and would I restart their Blackberries and that kind of stuff. And I really am useless at IT. I am I am not a technology person. I am a kind of digital native and interested in the digital world. And I think that if you're not in it, why would you know that there's quite a big difference between that and IT? So I've constantly disappointed people with my ability to help sort out their IT problems. Luckily, we now have a highly functioning parliamentary digital service to do that much better than I would ever be able to do it. Um, but that was quite surprising. But I think that more seriously, uh, and less personally, perhaps, I think what surprised me, although I hoped it would be true, was just the incredible level of commitment from the majority of people in the House of Lords. You know, I know that the House gets somewhat of a complex rap in the outside world 
but you know the people who are good are very very good indeed and it's a pleasure to be amongst them and to learn from them i'll just give you one example i share an office with the immense molly Nietzsche, who i tease her i don't know if she's 85 or 105 or 25 because she's got so much energy it's impossible to tell and she's always working on uh intensely complicated issues not um kind of glamour projects at all, things that are at the hard end of subjects. And I respect her so much. She never slows down. And she, you know, there are, there's no one else like Molly, but there are many people who have the same kind of work ethic and public service ethic as her. And I, I just think that um, it's a shame that some members of the House don't also live up to the high standards that Molly would definitely um, be one of the shining lights of. And we like to uh, round off our interviews with members by asking, do you have any favourite moments from your time? so far as a member? I think probably a couple. I mean, the, the making my maiden speech was a moment, but not as exciting as securing my first debate. I was nervous. I was on the, the day of the 25th anniversary of the World Wide Web, and I think it was the first time that there'd been a debate in the chamber to that degree about, the, well, certainly about the internet, but when more widely even about technology. And we had a lot of speakers. I did do quite a lot of um, rabble rousing to encourage the list, but there were about 35 speakers, I think, in the end. And it was really exciting to feel as though this was a group of people that had all thought about the internet and were bringing it to a chamber that perhaps had not had so many voices in this issue before. So that was a real highlight. And then for me, this, this recent experience of chairing the committee has felt extreme privilege. It's not been entirely easy in you know, a combination of the subject matter being entirely digital, my first time chairing a select committee, so I've had to learn a lot. I'm just done to do this. Uh, highly, whatever, iterative, that's the right way of using it in the technology world, um, appraisal system I gave myself. I don't think I did a very good job at the beginning, but I really enjoyed it, and I think that the committee is doing some very valuable work, and I've learned a lot from my colleagues, so it does feel like a real privilege to have the opportunity to chair that committee. Martha, uh, Baroness Lane Fox, thank you very much for joining us today. Of course, it was a pleasure. And that's it for this episode of the podcast. We'll be back next month with more from the House of Lords in a new session of Parliament. Until then, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.